Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. When Ash Dryden gets angry, she does something about it. She writes, she speaks, she tweets, she hosts conferences such as AlterConf, and she organizes fundraising programs. And as an engineer who knows what it's like to be a member of a marginalized group, the issue at the heart of Ash's anger is diversity awareness in the tech and gaming industries. Ash's outspoken activism has gotten her a lot of attention, both positive and negative, but she manages to find balance in her own life by maintaining friends and hobbies outside of the tech world and paying attention to her own needs while fighting for the needs of others. Hear how Ash turned herself into an expert and an internet celebrity, how she structures her time, and how she applied new learnings along with the skills she already had when she got started. Today I'm speaking with Ash Dryden, and uh, from AlterConf to uh, funding projects to all sorts of things, she's been involved in a number of diversity efforts, and at the same time she's a programmer and working. And Ash, how do you, given all the things you're doing, how do you introduce yourself? <laughs> that is an excellent question. Um, I usually tell people um, I, I'm a programmer. I've been a programmer for 15 years, mostly in open source-like spaces. I'm a White House fellow. Um, I organize AlterConf, a traveling conference uh, dedicated to diversity and inclusion in the tech and gaming industry. And I help marginalized people raise funds to further diversity in the tech industry. Wow, that's that's such a resume there. I'm, I'm curious, you, you just, how long ago did you move from just being a programmer to starting all of these other efforts? Probably four or five years ago, I was in the Ruby community and an incident happened with a conference and um, I got mad <laughs> is basically what happened. And I started speaking up a lot more and writing and um, speaking at conferences and that kind of thing. And it's kind of evolved to what it is today. So uh, not a lot of our listeners might know what uh, incident you're talking about. Do, how, do, how do you explain what happened? Sure. So uh, there was a conference that had stated that they're the most diverse conference in Western Europe for, you know, the specific um, type of Ruby. And um, a lot of people noticed that their lineup was all white men. Um, so people were asking, what kind of diversity are you talking about exactly? And it didn't go well after that. Uh, I, I was one of the people who stood up and said, like, I'd be happy to speak. I know a lot of other people who I can recommend to you to recommend that they speak at your event. And instead of responding in really any positive way, they just decided to cancel the conference. So that was kind of the worst case scenario. Nobody really learned anything from it. And it, it kind of became this you know, culture war between people who are trying to change the industry versus the way that we've always done things. So it's it's definitely gotten better, I feel, over time, or at least the conversation has happened uh, much more in-depth and with much more education around why those things are problems and what we can do to fix them. So I'm hoping that we're in a much better space today. Uh, it sounds like getting angry was, was a really inciting incident for you around this. But I'm not sure a lot of people would, would know how to take that anger and channel it in such a productive way. How, how did you start 
um, creating the, this uh, this diversity awareness pro process that you've been putting yourself putting the world through. So a lot of people were were you know saying, well, if these are problems, you know, what are the solutions, right? Like who is actually working on these types of things, um, and from all of the angles that you're talking about, because the homogeneity that we see in the tech industry is really vast and it's deep in a lot of different kinds of ways. And a lot of the conversation that we have around diversity tends to focus on gender and almost specifically around white women like myself. So I started doing a bunch of research to see who else is doing this kind of work, you know, what kind of research is out there, what, what uh, practices people are putting in place to change the way that they're doing business every day um, within their startups or, you know, their other tech companies or within their conferences and open source communities and started pulling together a lot of those resources and kind of disseminating them. And it's kind of led me to the point today where I'm creating spaces so people who don't look like me um, can talk about things in a much more deep manner um, beyond a one-on-one -on -one level, which is really what the what I see is the industry needs right now. As you've gotten more involved in this, um, I'm sure you've noticed this isn't an, an issue that's exclusive to the tech community, but that seems to be where you've put your focus. Um, how is that fitting into other efforts that you've been noticing? Yeah, uh, so a lot of a lot of discussion has happened around uh, diversity in a lot of different industries. The gaming industry has been going through this for the past few years. Um, we've seen a lot of discussion around journalism and um, Hollywood having issues with diversity. And a lot of the time we're fighting for the exact same thing up against the exact same kinds of issues. So there's definitely a lot to learn from each other. But I feel like tech is an interesting case out of those other big ones, journalism and Hollywood because tech is, as far as the demographic of people in the industry, is much younger. And one would think that that would make people more progressive, but that's not necessarily the case. So it, it takes a little bit more education, um, a little bit more experience, and um, the willingness to see that the way that we have done things before can be problematic, and that we can learn from other areas. We don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. And, and I'm sure that as soon as you started doing this, it was a big kumbaya, everybody got together and was singing and joyfully supporting everything you were doing, right? Oh yeah, people got my name tattooed on them and they erected sculptures. Yeah, that is not at all what happened. Um, uh, myself and a lot of other people that have been doing this kind of work um, face a lot of harassment, um, targeted harassment campaigns, abuse, threats. It makes it very difficult for me to be in places in public without security. Um, I've had to move across the country because of the reaction that I've had to my work. And it's 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 kind of ridiculous to think like uh, that programmers <laughs> could do this. You know, I, I, I'm a programmer myself. I've been in the industry for a decade and a half. And I love what I do, um, and I want to make things better. And some people want me to die because of that. And that's a very difficult thing to deal with. That's incredible. And it, it, it's amazing because I, I'm sure that it's uh, a lot of a lot of my listeners are not in the tech industry, and I'm sure they'd be amazed to hear just how vehement these feelings are. I'm curious, what do you think uh, brings up that kind of rage in people? I, you know, I wish I knew. I mean, I can I can venture guesses in a lot of different ways. I feel like part of it is that there is this belief that being a programmer is being a geek. And geeks look a certain way, they have a certain shared background and um, like a shared plight in life where they're made fun of and they're stuffed in lockers and um, they don't get girlfriends and all that kind of thing, right? 
So they think that, you know, other people coming in to want to be in these spaces means that this is one more place that they're being pushed out of, which is unfortunate because I've been a geek my entire life. Like I was made fun of for the exact same things. Um, I was ostracized for the exact same things. And now it's happening to me as an adult. You know, I, I wish that I could say that there was an easy answer, but I think that with a lot of people problems, there is no real clear cut, you know, direct answer to the problem. I'm sure. And it, it, I think a lot of it also stems from this invisible sense of privilege that we don't even realize we have. I, this, uh, But this violent response that people have gotten, you say that it's, it's caused you to move across the country? Yep. Um, I've had to deal with lawyers and police who are, you know, as a marginalized person, are very unhelpful anyway, because a lot of those systems are set up not usually to protect us. So dealing with, you know, people not seeing this as real violence, um, not thinking that this is something to take seriously, and having to explain what the internet is and what Twitter is and, and why, like, just shutting off your internet connection is not a solution. And that's the reaction to, like, I'm facing this violence. I'm afraid for my life. Um, I don't want to go anywhere by myself. So it's a, very, it's a very difficult thing to have to educate the people who are supposed to be protecting you. You're trying to deal with law enforcement organizations where the not only the anonymity of Twitter, but the ephemerality of the content is confusing to them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when someone, can, so when someone can be anywhere in the world, when you don't even know where that person is in the world, um, where is jurisdiction, you know, what kind of action do you expect them to take? All of that becomes very difficult to understand for them. And a lot of um, a lot of, you know, local law enforcement doesn't have the education or the tools to investigate anything digitally. Yeah, I can understand that. So take me back five years and Ash is angry and some, some horrible things have happened. How do you start doing the kinds of things that you've been working on? That's a really great question. <laughs> so I, I started speaking um, a lot on podcasts and people asked me to speak at meetups and, and conferences and that kind of thing. And I started doing more research into the way that people behave towards one another, how those responses happen, how human, how people throughout human history have dealt with, you know, the, the hand of being oppressed and fighting, having to fight for your rights and that kind of thing. And um, just started writing a lot more. And um, I got really lucky that I was in a place where I was able to start doing some fundraising because so much of this was taking up my like regular consulting time. I was independently employed. So anytime that I wasn't spending working on my clients, I was losing money. And a lot of this takes so much time and energy and effort that it was impacting my ability to, you know, buy cat food and buy human food and, you know, have a roof over my head and that kind of thing. And now um, all of that kind of work that I do is funded by individuals within open source spaces. So people for like as little as a dollar a month will chip in so that I can put on programs like AlterConf, which um, I do not get paid for. I'm half of Fund Club, which is a monthly like funding of the month type program where we send you a different organization that deserves funding but hasn't received the kind of response that they should expect for the work they're doing around diversity in tech and i don't get paid for that as well so that all of this kind of crowdfunding has allowed me to do those projects without it also financially harming me to do them which is kind of neat I love that idea of Fund Club, where, where um, people are essentially, you're providing them with a curated list of organizations that they can support. How did that come about? 
So I run Fun Club with the um, editor and founder of Montevideo Culture, Shanley Kane. And we were seeing so many of these startups getting, you know, millions of dollars for what to us seemed like really silly ideas that weren't really solving much of anything. Meanwhile, a lot of us were struggling to get funding for what we saw as very vital, critical work. So we thought, um, you know, what if we could reach out to all of our friends and make $100,000 plus a, a year and get them to give just $100 a month to some organization that we pick, that we deem is deserving and that we have vetted so people don't even have to do that work. They basically just have to click a button once a month um, and, and give that money. It's come a long way over the past year and we funded a lot of really awesome things, helping people of color, trans people, um, women and girls, all different kinds of groups all over the country doing really awesome things to further diversity and inclusion in the tech industry. Now, when you started out doing this uh, this public speaking on this, this issue, um, did you have any background or training in diversity awareness? No, I did not. Um, other than, you know, the my own research that I had done, I, I'm a big fan of kind of like continued education for adults. So I read a lot and I talk to a lot of people and, and that kind of thing, but no formal training. No, a lot of it was from my own experience, from my experience talking to other marginalized people in the industry, what they were going through, what they needed, what they wanted, what they weren't seeing. So a lot of it was informed by that as well as academic and scientific studies. I love that you just went out there and started doing it because you saw the need. How how was the re response to, I mean, you, you were starting out, you didn't actually have like a training or a, a, a set agenda to teach. You were just speaking your mind at that point. How was the reaction to that? Um, really mixed. Um, it's, it's difficult because a lot of that work becomes kind of preaching to the choir. You know, who are the people who show up to listen to those things? especially when you're looking at conferences that are multiple tracks where people have much more control over what they can do and where they can, you know, spend their attention. If they didn't feel like the issues around diversity and inclusion had anything to do with them, you know, I don't feel like I'm negatively or positively impacting this. This doesn't um, affect me in any real way. Then they just wouldn't show up. And unfortunately, those are the people who need that education the most. So that kind of education was much harder. I was telling the same thing a lot to people who already knew the information. So my next goal became to move the conversation beyond that level and to not worry about the people who weren't in the room. I didn't want the conversation to be artificially limited because they refused to sit in the seats. So I kind of pushed past that. And that's one of the reasons I created, created AlterConf. So we move beyond one-on-one -on -one level of a lot of different kinds of people talk about a lot of different kinds of issues that affect their ability to get jobs, stay in jobs, enjoy being in the industry, and ultimately to succeed and to get those opportunities that other people do have. And people are taking notice, you know, companies are realizing that they can't really move to the next level without addressing these kinds of issues. And AlterConf becomes a venue for that education that they need. That they need. I can see that. And AlterConf is still focused primarily inside of the tech industry. Uh, tech and gaming. There's so much overlap between the two. Um, a lot of the same developers and designers and that kind of thing kind of move between the two spaces and we have a lot of shared issues. So it's, its focus is the tech and gaming industry specifically.
Have you noticed a, a cultural difference between the tech industries and the gaming industries? There are definitely a lot of differences in that there's a lot more money in the tech industry. There's a lot more new money in the tech industry. So there's kind of this feeling that anybody can create a tech company and, you know, get a million dollar valuation or billion dollar valuation um, where that same kind of feel doesn't happen in games. And it's interesting because that creates its own diversity problems in that a lot of people who don't have experience managing people who don't have experience running a business are now tasked with hiring and creating a culture and maintaining that culture and growing, you know, um, and they don't have the experience to know that, you know, why do we need HR? Why do we need, you know, legal department? Why do we need to make sure that we follow uh, employment law? Or like learning from uh, a lot of other industries that other people came from before. There's really a feeling of the way that things have been going are bad. So let's reinvent, let's start from scratch. Um, and unfortunately that throws out a lot of really important lessons that a lot of industries have learned and informed, you know, our ways of doing things. Yeah, no, it's true. As, as somebody who's worked in both management consulting and human resources in the past myself, I can I can tell you that there's a lot of there's a lot of investment in diversity training, but there isn't a lot of attention paid to it. Yep, absolutely. And um, I feel like there's there's a lot of um, something I was saying before, a lot of like surface investment. Like we want we want to look like we're doing something about this, but there isn't really a lot of actual movement. You know, diversity and inclusion is everyone's job. It's great if you have a head of diversity, it's great if you have an HR department, but your company is a lot bigger than those two people. And those two people aren't going to be the ones that are only interacting, you know, with all of the rest of your staff every single day. You know, it, 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 you really need to get to the person who's sitting next to that new person in the office, the person who's doing the interviews, the, the person who, you know, treats the receptionist and the catering staff like crap or, you know, asks inappropriate questions or, or puts, you know, crappy racist jokes in Slack, right? Like you need to get to all of those people. There has to actually be action and there has to be consequences for those kinds of actions as well. Absolutely. And, and I think the, also consequences for the bottom line of the company are one of the things that I think draw people's attention to diversity awareness, because the customer base for most of these companies is much more diverse than the employee group at these companies. And they're not going to be able to reach that broad customer base unless they actually recognize the needs of people from a wide range of backgrounds. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are so many financial benefits and so few um, detriments to having team diversity that there's really no reason. I mean, if, if the ethical argument doesn't get to you, then the financial one should, right? I, I do this because it's the right thing to do. We should be treating everybody with respect and everyone should have the same opportunities um, for growth and success, but we're not getting it. But if you run a business and the most important thing to you is your bottom line, not having diversity means you don't have as wide of a customer base. You're not creating products for that wide customer base. You don't have the same market share that your more diverse counterparts have. You know, your, crea your creativity and your ability to think outside the box aren't the same as companies who are more diverse. So you're really losing in every way if you do not increase diversity and inclusion. Are you doing any management consulting yourself or do you go and consult with companies to help them with their diversity efforts? Yeah, that's actually my first full-time job is I'm a diversity and inclusion um, consultant. So I work with 
companies, startups, conferences, open source communities to change the way that they're hiring, bringing people into the pipeline, the way that they're treating them internally, the benefits and perks that they offer, um, the outreach that they're doing, um, and the education that they're doing internally. So I do a lot of that work. Um, so it's like my my number one job next to my number two job of UltraConf, my two full-time jobs. <laughs> that plus Ruby programming, of course. Well, I, I actually haven't um, done much programming lately. Um, I do a lot for um, my own projects for UltraConf and for Fun Club and that kind of thing. But all of this has kind of taken over like a very slow moving goo. It's kind of taken over um, all of the rest of my time. So how, how do you find your clients for that? Uh, actually, almost all of um, my clients come through word of mouth. Um, I'm a relatively recognized name um, in open source spaces, and a lot of my clients are, you know, very nice and send me referrals and that kind of thing. But also through the work that I do on AlterConf, through my writing, I have you know, thousands of words um, written online about these types of things. And I think also a lot of people put a lot of trust in the fact that I have been an engineer, so I've been in those spaces. Um, so I'm not somebody coming in and making assumptions about what that culture should be like, because I have been in that culture before, right? I, I, I live in that culture. So I think that that lends a lot of trust um, to the work that I do as well. You definitely come come with an insider voice on this, and everybody can relate directly to what you're talking about, and certainly people who felt that uh, that exclusion from lack of diversity awareness. And I think you're also working on a couple of books. Yep, I have two books in the works. Um, one of them is specifically about diverse teams, how we as um, developers and programmers and engineers um, can be changing our companies from within to make it so anyone can succeed, so we can recognize our own biases, so we can change the way we're doing hiring or the way that we approach our culture, as well as a book around um, inclusive conference organizing, because I organize a very successful conference that centers that centers accessibility and you know marginalized people at every turn. We offer free childcare and accessible venues on public transit lines and a code of conduct and um, inclusive meals for people with religious and dietary restrictions, you know, a really wide range of things, kind of taking all of those lessons and putting them into a book. So conference organizers can see like, hey, we can do this. It's not as time consuming or as expensive as we thought. And it kind of becomes the manual for how conferences should be organized. And you go to a lot of effort to make it available to a, to a wide range of people. I mean, it's not one of those conferences that happens once a year in one location and costs thousands of dollars for people to attend. Yeah, <laughs> um, we so we go to a different city somewhere in the world every single month. And part of the motivation beyond that, behind that was um, that so many of these kinds of conversations are happening in small scale, but only in places like New York and San Francisco, maybe Portland, maybe Chicago. Um, they're not really happening anywhere else. So it made much more sense to move four people from a specific city to everyone where everyone else is versus asking 300 people to come and see us. You know, it's better on the environment. It's more um, financially healthy for a lot of communities that don't have Silicon Valley bucks to be able to have these conversations um, in a place where they don't have to worry about, oh, what am I gonna do with my kids for the day? Or, you know, I can't take a week off of work or, um, you know, a lot of different issues around that. Plus we can have conversations that are geographically 
geographic specific. So if there are things going on in your city that are important, you know, you can find out what's going on in your backyard. It's not something that's happening thousands of miles away. So this year we're going to be on five different continents having this conversation. Um, we've already had 13 or 14 events. We're getting ready to have another one in June. So yeah, we do a lot to bring it to people to make it as accessible in every possible way. In every possible way. I, I also love that you're uh, you're amplifying the voices of people in these different locations who might not be as it might not be as convenient for them to go and speak in some you know San Francisco, Chicago, New York, etc. I mean, something that I hadn't thought about when I first started is that there are some people who do not want to travel to these other places because they have to worry about getting through the TSA and their drivers, the gender on their driver's license is not the same as they present, right? Or having to worry about, you know, the, di the difference in the way that the police react in, you know, New York City versus in Atlanta, right? All of those, all of those different kinds of issues come up when uh, we talk about geographic diversity and it's something that's kind of missed. But I think it's a really important lesson for all those companies that are looking to hire folks remote that you're really opening up that funnel, right, to all of those people who otherwise wouldn't feel comfortable living in your city or moving away from their like familial um, support network or, you know, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of different opportunity there. It's excellent. And it's it's hard enough to organize one of those once a year conferences in one location you're familiar with. When you started this, did you have any background in event planning to do something like this? I've been a conference organizer for probably, um, you know, 12 or 13 years now, and um, mostly in tech spaces. So I've organized, you know, bar camps and uh, all the way from bar camps to much larger, you know, multiple thousand person tech events. So I have a lot of experience in the way that a lot of different conferences are run. I have been hired on to do kind of diversity work at other conferences. So I've seen uh, where a lot of things could be improved. And on top of that, I've been a speaker myself. So I, I've seen um, the different kinds of things that I wish conferences would have. You know, I can't tell you the number of conferences that like as a speaker gift, they thought they were doing something nice by like giving me a bottle of booze and I don't drink, you know, which like and that's the best case scenario, right? Like I don't drink. There are people that they're giving bottles of booze to who have real problems of addiction with alcohol. And now you've just given them a bottle of booze and sent them off to their hotel room, right? Like a, a lot of those things, just seeing them firsthand and, and worrying about what message we're really sending have really informed how good of a conference organizer I am, I think. Um, so I've seen it from a behind the scenes organizer myself, from a speaker, from an attendee, and I can see where all the little holes are and where we can make things better. So I've been very lucky to take those years of experience and kind of put them into AlterConf. So so technically, how do you organize one of these things? Because clearly you're, you're not doing this all as a one person team here. Uh, no, so it's me and my very, very part-time um, coordinator for the conference. And basically it's email and Asana and Google spreadsheets. <laughs> um, then we have a lot of, um, technically we have a, a lot of um, awesome stuff on the back end to connect APIs from Zero and from our ticket manager and our website and, and that kind of thing so that there's a lot less um, running around that we have to do and a lot more you know data collection and pushing stuff around where we need it. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a very simple operation. <laughs> How much lead time do you have for each each individual conference in the in the series of conferences? 
Yeah, so um, for domestic ones, um, so our team is located in the United States. So for domestic conferences, we like to have at least two months for international ones, three to four months. The more lead time we have, the easier it is to get things like speakers and that kind of thing. But uh, it's much harder to have a longer lead time uh, just because we're organizing so many events at once. So we always have to deal with that like that. This is the last two weeks before the event. What are all of the things that we have to do right now? So it's somehow it always works. You know, we haven't had any major, you know, snafus. So two months to four months is an incredibly tight timeline for something as complex as what you're putting together. I'd love to see your checklist. <laughs> it's a very involved checklist. Yeah. Um, but like everything happens in that time period. You know, we're doing all of our marketing, our fundraising, which is no easy feat. Um, you know, we're reaching out to lots of different local organizations, you know, to, to get people interested in applying to speak and to pick up tickets. We, I personally do a lot of coaching and mentoring for first time speakers because we don't have, we have very few barriers when it comes to the people who apply to speak, but about half of our speakers have never spoken anywhere else before. So it's a lot of calming nerves and helping people learn how to use keynote and PowerPoint and helping people come up with outlines that make sense and that kind of thing. So a lot of stuff happens in that short period of time. You're also doing a lot to help publicize the work of the people who speak at your conferences, I believe. Yeah, exactly. So not only are we obviously giving them a stage to be able to talk about things they're passionate about or things they see um, should be changed or their experiences, but also the cool projects they're working on. So we talk a lot about how we can be funding those kinds of things, how we can spread the word about them, because a lot of these projects kind of live and die by the amount of funding that they have. Because marginalized people tend to make quite a lot less than their more privileged counterparts, and they're doing it in far less spare time than their more privileged counterparts. Um, not having access to funding and to the people and to the resources that they need can can make or break you know, an awesome project. Um, so we do what we can to divert resources and um, we pay all of our speakers, which a lot, of, a lot of people turn around and put that money into whatever organization or cool project they're working on. I would imagine that the visibility of marginalized people are, is, is also very difficult in, uh, in social media in general. How do you even find these people to, to, to reach out to them? Um, so we rely a lot on people that we call ambassadors. So ambassadors are people that live and work in the city that we're traveling to that are intimately familiar with the local landscape. So the, the niche organizations that are focused specifically on people of color, in, you know, engineers in that area or the women in tech organizations, you know, that are in a specific area. And they help us highlight people that they've seen speak before or that they've talked to and have awesome, you know, ideas about things, or they help us find context within those organizations so that we can say like, hey, we, we want to personally invite you to do this thing. Because we as humans tend to know people that are like us and people like me aren't necessarily all of the people that I want to see at AlterConf. We rely heavily on other people's experience and networks. Have there been uh, uh, members of different marginalized communities who've been more difficult to uh, to reach out to and to get visibility for? Yes, and I think part of that has to do with the fact that their numbers just seem very small in the industry. Native and indigenous populations are always hard. Um, we have had some representation at AlterConf, but not as nearly as much as we would like. 
And, you know, we would, we would love to have more undocumented people speak, but that's a very dangerous thing to do in the U.S. to talk about, you know, not being a documented native or naturalized um, citizen of the U.S. So there, there are a lot of different things that we're kind of always like striving to reach out to people and create a space where they can talk about things that um, are important to them without causing them further harm. Like we want this to be a positive experience in every single way possible. And if that means them standing up on stage and potentially being arrested for what they talk about, you know, that we haven't, we haven't reached our goal yet. So we, we do offer up other opportunities where people can, you know, talk in video or they put together, you know, documentaries and that kind of thing. And those are shown at AlterConf, so they don't have to expose that same kind of safety issue or um, they can have some level of anonymity to protect them. But it's never, you know, it's never 100% coverage in those kinds of things. Of course, but I, I love that you're making the opportunity for people to present these issues, even if they're not comfortable standing up in front of an audience themselves and doing it. Yeah, I mean, it's a very scary thing for a lot of people. Very many marginalized people don't have the experience of public speaking because we're often not asked to speak at conferences. We're not invited, we're not chosen, you know, we're not selected because of, you know, unconscious biases in the selection committee and, you know, people just not reaching out to us, not paying for, you know, people's time and experience, um, not making the venue accessible for you to actually get in the building. There are a lot of different barriers that we put in place that make it much more difficult for marginalized people to have those opportunities. So being able to say, I have spoken at a conference, here's a video, um, it lends a little bit more credence to marginalized people going forward. And that's like a, a bonus uh, service that we provide with AlterConf is like we put all of our videos up online if people consent to be recorded so they can go and show other conference organizers like, hey, I do have experience speaking. Here's a video of me so that they can, you know, further their careers and, you know, network and stuff more um, to succeed in diff new and different ways. And that is that's a huge bonus, too. And that makes uh, that makes the information available to such a wide range of people who might just be incidentally interested in what you're doing and then discover how much depth there is there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, f and because uh, we can't go to every single city with AlterConf, right? Like it's basically me and, you know, five hours a week of someone else. Um, we can't go to every single city in the world. So this means that whether you live an hour away from wherever we're going to be, or if you live, you know, 100 hours away, you can you have the opportunity to have the same level of access as long as you have connection to the internet. It also speaks to that split audience that, you're, that you were talking about before, where there are people where you're preaching to the choir and they already completely buy into what you're talking about and they just want to learn more versus people who would otherwise have no interest and may even be antagonistic to your message. Oh yeah, um, we've had a lot of people take the videos that we have recorded with AlterConf and they use those as like a lunch and learn opportunity within their company. So they say, you know, like this is something that's important to me. I don't personally want to talk about it, but can we all watch this video over lunch and like eat together? And that becomes like a first step in that conversation. So the people who are speaking at AlterConf have so much more reach than they could if it were just the people sitting in the room. When do you do most of your writing since you're so prolific? Um, when I'm angry. <laughs> <laughs> I always, I, I feel like I'm always able to get the most out when 
I mean, it's so unfortunate. Like when something bad happens in the industry and I'm like, I have a lot of feelings about this. So I'll just like sit and bang on the keyboard so that I don't yell at people on Twitter. But it's also nice because it keeps me from having to repeat myself. So people keep asking me the same question. I'll just send them a link. Like I've already answered this and it's, you know, much better phrase than I could do at any, you know, particular time, you know, that people are randomly tweeting at me. So, um, so yeah, it, it is entirely dependent on what's going on. Um, how much time I have. I haven't been writing nearly as much as I would like, but that also means that I've been a lot less angry lately, which is good. <laughs> that is good, although it's impressive what you're able to accomplish with your anger, so it might be worthwhile to all of us if you stay a little bit angry there. Yeah, exactly. I feel like um, from, my, from a mental health perspective, it's like uh, a good way to channel anger and to like productively use that like adrenaline but it's also nice to like walk around my house and be happy and like pet cats and, you know, smell flowers and stuff. So, so I go back and forth a little bit. <laughs> so I'm sure that the, the anger fueled writing is more the blog posts, but I know that you probably also need a different, a different routine to deal with the book writing aspect. Yeah. And that's actually something that's been really hard to transition because a lot of my writing when I do it, like I said, one, I'm angry. So I have like this passion and I'll have all of this stuff to get out of me. But I'm, I also don't write in a linear fashion. So I have a bunch of ideas and I just, I'll like write a paragraph about each one of them. And then I'll just dissect and, you know, move things around and kind of figure out where things should go. And, you know, if it's even necessary. And with a book, that's much harder because you have to have a much more organized structure for you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of words. So that dissection process becomes a lot more difficult when you're looking at, you know, a novel size book um, than a, you know, 3000 word blog post. It's also much harder to, to work as an adrenaline driven kind of a process if you're building something that requires, you know, hundreds of hours and hundreds of thousands of words potentially. Oh yeah. And lots of, you know, because a lot of my more formal writing is backed by, you know, scientific and academic studies and interviews that I've done with companies and with marginalized people within the tech industry. So it's, it's much more difficult to kind of get all those puzzle pieces to fit you know, when you're looking at something that's so much longer and has to be so much more organized and thought out and rationally put together, I guess, because I want it to be a resource, you know, I want it to be a handbook for how we can do this thing the right way. So it requires a lot more in-depth thought. Your, your work is driven by your passion, which is incredibly draining. <laughs> and I'm curious how you keep yourself motivated. I think the biggest motivator, I mean, I grew up really poor. Um, so I've had a lot of crappy jobs that I hated. And I knew that like, I still had to go to my crappy job that I hated because I had to buy groceries. So I feel like so much of my work ethic is like, uh, I work for myself. I have no coworkers. If I don't do it, nobody else is going to and everyone will fire me, right? Like, I don't have just one boss because I basically work for the open source tech community. Like I have... 300 bosses. So at any point in time, they can decide, well, we're not going to fund your work anymore. And that can have a really big impact on the kinds of things that I can do and how much success I can have. So I don't want my bosses to fire me. <laughs> so I just, you know, I put my head down and I get it done. And um, I try really hard to have a solid work-life balance. You know, I'm I'm done every day at work at pretty much the same time. You know, I make 
my lunch at home, I make my dinner at home, I go for walks outside, I pet my cats, I read books, I, I do a lot of knitting because that's something I can do away from my computer. So all of those things um, kind of help me stay focused during the day because I know that there is that rest time at the end. I can hear the fear-driven aspect of what you're talking about <laughs> there. It's something I think a lot of folks are familiar with. How do you maintain yourself? Do you do you get any coaching or do you get any support in the work that you're doing? I So I'm really close friends um, with a couple people who do really similar things. So being able to vent and be like, I don't want you to say that you're sorry. I just want you to hear what I'm saying and like hear me being frustrated because this is something I can't say publicly or for whatever reason, it's extra hard for me to deal with. Um, there are a lot of things that happen that like really hit close to home for me. Um, so being able to have that support network, but also I'm really close with a few people in my personal life that don't have anything to do with the industry at all. So being able to get away from it all together and to not think about it and to go and see a movie or whatever, that helps me to see that there's still good stuff because that's I think that's one of the biggest dangers is in the beginning I would find blog posts or I would find articles about bad things that were happening in the industry that position has changed now in that because I have such a large audience those bad things find me so if I haven't commented on something people will email it to me or people will send a message to me on Twitter so I can't get away from it so I have to be very careful about understanding how I'm likely to feel after I read something or after I listen to something and what I'm going to do with that energy. So there might be things that happen and I just tell people, you know, I appreciate that this is going on, but there are other people that are talking about it and you might direct your energy towards them because this is something that's too close to home or I just can't deal with that today. And the vast majority of time, people are very understanding of that. Some people don't some people lose sight of the fact that I'm a person and that I have feelings. And I like to tell people I have an enlarged empathy gland and it makes me very sick sometimes. You know, it, it, it feels very personal when something bad happens to a marginalized person and knowing that, you know, it could have drastic effects on their life, their financial life, their personal life, their ability to continue living at all. Like all of those things hit me really close. Um, and it's hard to deal with them on an emotional level. Um, so knowing where that line is for myself and being able to say like, okay, I just can't do this anymore. I need a break or I need to take a week off or, you know, whatever it is. And knowing myself well enough and respecting myself enough to do what I need to do to take care of myself is super important in doing this work. I'm glad to hear that you have a social network that, that extends beyond uh, the work that you're doing. Because I know for a lot of us, our professional lives become our social lives, especially when the, when the work is so all-consuming as yours. The social network that you, that you have, I mean, you, you've obviously built up a large social network through the work that you're doing. Yeah, um, and that kind of has its pluses and, and minuses too. Like it's something that I've talked about, like people, people feel close to you because you share your emotions online. Um, and that's a lot of what I do with this kind of work is like, I feel strongly about this thing and it personally injures me when this thing happens and how can we possibly be doing this? How can we not care? Um, so people feel emotionally close to me, which I appreciate, but at, a sa at the same time, people feel like this is a really weird thing about like internet celebrities. Like everybody thinks that somebody is taking care of me. Right. Like, I don't want to be the person that says that because like she's famous and, you know, she doesn't need anybody to reach out to her like sh her job is doing this thing. Um, but it's 
I mean, it's so much, I don't even know how to describe it. Like I, I almost feel more emotionally isolated from the people who feel like they're in my social network versus me being in theirs because I play a role to them that they don't play to me. You know, whether that's we don't have a personal relationship or people only think of me when bad things are happening. And it's it's a very weird place to be in. You know, it's not something that I ever experienced as a programmer. You know, if I was banging my head against some JavaScript bug and somebody came along and commiserated with me and like helped help me work through it. Like that's, that's what people want to do, but it's not the same way when it comes to these kinds of discussions, um, or in this kind of work, it's a, it's a, been a very strange shift for me over the past five years. It's, yeah, I, I can, I can hear how that must be. And you, you've become iconic for this is, this is diversity awareness. And when an issue comes up, that's the person I'm going to turn to. How do you take care of yourself through something like that? I think it really depends on what the thing is. Sometimes I just, shut down and I have to be away from the internet for a week. Um, and I just don't ever want to talk about that thing again. Um, other times, you know, it, it honestly has me thinking that I don't want to do this work anymore. It really just depends on how bad it is because burnout is very real. I mean, I'm so close to all of these issues all the time. I've experienced a lot of the problems that get brought up again and again and again. And how long can you keep believing that things are going to get better if you keep seeing those things happen again and again and again? And it doesn't seem like anyone is learning from them, right? Like, I really want people to learn from other people's mistakes because otherwise we're not going to get anywhere. But people, the right people aren't paying attention in enough places. They don't think that, you know, certain things um, have anything to do with them. So they do that and then their coworker does it and then the, the company next door does it and it it becomes this epidemic and it's really hard to maintain an optimistic attitude towards things when you see that so many people are are really hurting and you know are leaving the industry forever and you know are ending up in hospitals over this kind of stuff it's it's really difficult i imagine though that the success stories are also motivational Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but I feel like the weight of those, like the, 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 the weight that that has when somebody says, this was a really great thing and this really helped me, isn't the same weight as this is a bad thing that happened again from the same company again. You know, these people aren't learning again. Um, I feel like you need so many more good things to, to equal that same weight on the other side. So I, I, I want to ask, how can uh, listeners help support what you're doing? Sure. Um, so if you want to directly support me, um, you can go to ashdryden.com and my name is spelled A-S-H-E, ashdryden.com slash donate and you can donate towards the work that I do. Otherwise, I uh, highly recommend looking at Fund Club. It's at joinfundclub.com and you can give money directly towards the awesome organizations that are um, working really hard to, to make the change that we need to see in the industry. Fun Club is cool because it's run, like I said, by me and Chandler Kane of Model View Culture, and we don't take any money from the funds that you donate. Everything, 100% of it goes directly to the organization. We don't even touch the money, which is super important because a lot of these organizations are kind of being preyed upon when it comes to like finding middlemen for that kind of thing. So your, all of your money goes directly towards these organizations where it can do the most good. 
Otherwise, you know, what you can do for yourself and for the industry is just to pay attention. All of these, ha- all of these things, you know, have something to do with you, whether that's um, the conversation you didn't realize was inappropriate with a coworker or the judgment that you made um, based on somebody who was interviewing at your company. We can all learn something from all of these incidents. So, you know, follow people that are different than you on Twitter, you know, read blog posts when they come around and, you know, they float to the top and really take a look at your own actions and, and the kinds of things that you can do to make yourself better and make the industry around you better. That, that's wonderful advice. So I, I want to thank you so much for your passion and for your anger and for staying with this project as difficult as it may be. And thank you very much for joining us on Hack the Process today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was very cathartic. <laughs> I appreciate hearing that. <laughs> Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>